Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and boy, do we have a fabulous show for you tonight. Joining me is Liberal Party Defence and National Security Policy Branch Chair Lincoln Parker to discuss Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's recent audience with President Xi Jinping of China and what it could mean, if anything, for Australia, followed by Australian LNP Senator Jared Rennick to talk about the unfortunate state of the Labor Party and even more unfortunate treasurer Jim Chalmers. But first, one of the biggest stories of the week is the fact that Australian Labor Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visited China and had an audience with none other than President Xi Jinping himself. The visit has been labelled historic, as no Australian Prime Minister has visited China for seven years, let alone had a meeting with President Xi. And on the face of it, Xi seemed pretty happy with how it went. Now, the China-Australia relationship has embarked on the right path of improvement and development. I'm heartened to see that. A healthy and stable China-Australia relationship serves the common interests of our two countries and two peoples. So did Anthony Albanese, who has been revelling in the fact that not only was he granted an audience, but that since Labor has come to power, nearly all of the $20 billion worth of sanctions placed by China on Australian products like wine, beef and barley have been lifted. The sanctions, of course, were triggered by the actions of two former Liberal Prime Ministers, Malcolm Turnbull, who rightfully banned Chinese company Huawei from selling 5G equipment due to national security concerns, and of course, Scott Morrison, who also rightfully called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 back in 2020. Xi, as soft as the cartoon bear he's often compared to, spat the dummy at this assertion from Morrison and began flinging sanctions left, right and centre. This was dangerous for Australia, given China's prominence as our largest trading partner. Prior to COVID hitting in 2019, China was buying a full 38% of all Australian exports. As such, Xi knew he had considerable leverage. Peter Hartscher outlined Xi's 2020 strategy in a recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald. According to Hartscher, he applied a four-part coercive pressure, trade bans, a political freeze, detentions of Australian citizens as political hostages, and the calculated harassment of the RAAF and the Navy and then delivered a set of 14 demands, starting with a diktat that Australia must accept more Chinese investment. So what happened then? Did Australia crumble under this terrible pressure from Beijing? While it might be hard to tell at face value, thanks to the general economic upheaval at the time caused by federal and state government responses to COVID-19, we didn't crumble. As Peter Harcher outlines, to his credit, Morrison not only shrugged off the coercion, he marshalled national assets to strengthen Australia's position. With Labor's support, he joined the Quad, strengthened relations with Japan, India and others, and proposed AUKUS. The Albanese government continued Morrison's initiatives and went further and better. The government made no substantive concessions to Beijing, but only moderated its rhetoric. Australia's exports, with the sole exception of wine, successfully diverted to other markets. Australia has now reduced its dependency on China exports from 38% to around 30%. As to what happened next, well, Xi eventually started to progressively wind back the trade and economic sanctions on Australia. Almost all of them are now gone. Now, while some commentators might put this down to Anthony Albanese's soft rhetoric on China compared to Scott Morrison's, Peter Harcher has a different take. He states that the coercion measures from Z were undone only under the pretext of cooler rhetoric from Australia, when in fact it was because the measures simply didn't work. 
Hard to calls the measures an embarrassing failure that only encouraged other nations to stand up to Xi Jinping's bullying. Now, regardless of whether it was because of Albanese's kowtowing or a long game of tag team between the Morrison and Albanese governments adopting a softly, softly catchy monkey approach, Albo is more than clearly happy to take the win. And he really needs one in the wake of the disastrous loss he suffered when the voice referendum failed. Certainly, he was very pleased to be in China and, of course, took the opportunity to embody former Labour Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, who was the first Australian Prime Minister to visit China back in 1973. But this morning it's been an opportunity to retrace history. Uh, the Labour Party uh, does care about our history and Australia cares about our history as well. Uh, this is commemorating 50 years since Prime Minister Whitlam uh, came to China to recognise the first visit uh, by an Australian Prime Minister to China following the recognition between Australia and the People's Republic of China upon the election of the Whitlam government. It was a historic visit and he visited, of course, uh, this Temple of Heaven here. Yes, indeed. Albanese and the Australian delegation took the time to mirror Gough Whitlam's 1973 visit to the Echo Wall at the Temple of Heaven, almost but not quite recre recreating that famous black and white photo 50 years later. Now, that is not at all surprising from this Prime Minister, who seems determined to carve out his place in the history books in any way he can, however misguided, given his determination to hold a referendum most people didn't want, on a policy most people didn't like, at a time when most people were more focused on paying soaring power bills than alleged social justice. Nevertheless, Albanese will be thrilled with the lifting of sanctions and thawing of relations between Australia and China because, as he put it, a lot of Australian jobs depend on it. Uh, China is our, our most important trading partner. It uh, represents more than 25% of our exports and one in four of our jobs relies upon our trade. Now, why is Anthony Albanese saying that like it's a good thing or even an acceptable thing? Regardless of how we rely on China economically, the bottom line is they are a hostile communist foreign power that has nothing but contempt for the West, has no qualms in engaging in human rights abuses against groups like the Uyghur Muslims, hid information in the early days of COVID from the rest of the world that would have saved lives if the warning had been sounded sooner, bludgeoned Australia with trade sanctions for having the audacity to quite reasonably ask questions about the origins of COVID COVID, and nobody is really sure that they're not going to engage in some sort of military action against Taiwan in the near future, which Australia would be forced to engage in. For goodness sake, it wasn't that long ago China had a one-child policy, which caused countless baby girls to be abandoned at birth and worse. Why do we want to be associated with China in any way beyond what is strictly necessary? Surely, given how thoroughly untrustworthy China and Xi Jinping have proved themselves, we should be continuing to lessen Australia's dependence on China for trade and look for new trading opportunities with other countries. Even Anthony Albanese shied away from an affirmative answer when asked whether he was convinced he could trust President Xi. Uh, I'm convinced that we're building a relationship that's constructive, uh, one where we're able to talk with each other directly. And in the discussions that I have had with him, uh, the formal discussion, uh, but the other discussions as well, uh, they have been positive and respectful. And all of that is before you consider the soft power China is currently exercising in the Pacific. According to recent research by Aid Data, which is a research laboratory at the William and Mary University in the United States, 
Pacific nations who switched their allegiance from Taiwan to China received immediate rewards from China through concessional loans and development grants worth tens of millions of dollars, sometimes into the billions. What is this setting the scene for? And what did Anthony Albanese actually get for Australia out of his meeting with President Xi, aside from, evidently, sparkling and rather tone-deaf conversation, given the cost of living crisis, on the superiority of Australian wine? Uh, we even had a bit of a debate about uh, wine and the quality, and uh, President Xi uh, relayed that after one of his visits to Australia, he went to New Zealand and they were pitching up uh, how good New Zealand wine was, but he certainly agreed that Australian wine is uh, good, and I asserted, I asserted uh, 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 Australia's preeminence when it comes to quality red wine, uh, which is in particular demand uh, here in China. Joining me to demystify all of this is Liberal Party Defence and National Security Policy Branch Chair Lincoln Parker. So, Lincoln, Anthony Albanese has missed the mark on many, many things since becoming Prime Minister, and it has certainly cost him. Is this visit to China likely to win him back brownie points that he lost over things like the voice and the cost of living crisis? No, I don't think so. Look, we just saw the Australian Financial Review release a article that states Australia has recorded their biggest income decline in the developed world. <gasps> so we're seeing newly released data from the OECD that shows that Aussie households suffered the largest fall in living standards of any advanced economy over the past year. Um, just in the 12 months to June of this year, Aussie household incomes have slumped by over 5%, which is the sharpest fall recorded across any OECD major country in the world. So, you know, I mean, Albo's been around the world and I get that some of that is important. The China trip definitely was not important for many, many reasons. Um, whilst Australia is really, really struggling, people can't pay their rent, people can't pay their mortgages. They're watching their real wages go down. They're watching their, the prices of their groceries go up and especially their electricity prices. Businesses are going under. Um, he really needs to be doing his job rather than dividing the country and, and going off and celebrating Gough Whitlam's 50th anniversary in China when he has a real job to do at home. That, that is just extraordinary. What I have to ask you, in your opinion, why is it so bad in Australia compared to other countries in the developed world? Well, it's clearly comes down to energy and um, the, I guess, the approach that Australia has taken over the last uh, 30 years, but more generally over the last 10 years, has been to go all in on renewables. Mm. And so there's a very clear correlation between energy production and, um, you know, the cost of electricity and therefore whether, uh, you know, whether businesses can keep the lights on, uh, and whether businesses can continue to manufacturing. Um, we've seen that the percentage of manufacturing in Australia on a GDP basis has fallen since 1990 from about 15% uh, um, of GDP to a mere 5% of GDP as of 2022. Mm. And the correlation there between obviously, therefore, the correlation is the jobs the percentage of jobs in manufacturing in Australia has also dramatically fallen. We just don't make anything here anymore. Um, you know, we used to make cars and aeroplanes, manufacture all sorts of things, and we're lucky to make paper straws now. Um, so, you know, you talk about whether a Labor government is supposed to be uh, the party of the worker. Well, we've seen that the Labor government and the Labor Party have, have stripped Australia of any working class jobs. And... You know, that's, that is also really coming uh, important for national security because if you're wholly dependent on, should not be dependent on other countries, we are the, we're an energy-rich nation and yet we have some of the highest energy costs on the planet. Um, you know, I would ask Australians, 
just look at a country like Sweden. Mm. It's a smaller country than Australia, and yet Sweden manufactures Volvos, um, Saabs, uh, Gripen jet fighters, um, and, and white goods. Um, yet Australia, we don't make anything. Mm. And yet why is that? Because of our, our cost of energy with the, the Labor Party and Chris Bowen going all in on renewables and uh, solar uh, and batteries um, and wind turbines and, and, and wind turbines just are all going out of business worldwide. Um, and, of course, all of those supply chains for your solar, for the inverters that um, control solar panels, which are all happen in Australia, they all happen to be manufactured in, in China mm. um, and they're connected to the internet. So if you're worried about an Optus outage yesterday, um, <laughs> you know, you should be worried about China controlling Australia's energy grid. Albanese has taken great pride in being the first Australian PM to visit China in seven years. He's very proud of this renewing of our relationship, even at a time when other countries are trying to decrease their dependency on China. But how much of this apparent so-called goodwill and a thawing of our relations with China can actually be attributed to Albanese's leadership? Well, I doubt very much at all. China does, it, China is an authoritarian communist government and China does what is best for itself. Um, and let's be real here, Albanese went over to China and he said this, I mean, this is public knowledge, uh, to celebrate Gough Whitlam's 50th anniversary of first going over to China. I mean, mm. this is the disgraced prime minister that was booted out of uh, well, booted out of office, um, you know, almost 50 years ago. Uh, and that's why Albanese went over there. Uh, you know, he may have spoken about trade and other things, um, but we've seen no outcomes. We've seen no results out of this trip. And China trades with Australia simply because it needs what we produce. It needs the best iron ore in the world um, that is delivered on time every time. Uh, it needs our coal because they have over 3,000 coal-fired generating power stations and they're, um, they're putting up another 50 mm. as we speak. Um, so they have to have these raw materials for their own benefit because there are very other few, if not any, reliable suppliers. Now, whether they start buying our wine again or our uh, lobsters, you know, I don't really think makes a huge amount of difference to our economy. But what the Labor government should have been doing if they were really interested in the national security of Australia is not making us so dependent on China, but rather diversifying our trade to other markets like the largest uh, population in the world in India. Mm. Um and, you know, increase our trade with Europe. I mean, they just stuffed up the free trade agreement with Europe, so we no longer or we don't have a free trade agreement with Europe. But we should be trading more and diversifying away from authoritarian communist regimes and, and trading more with friendly countries that do not seek to put um, trade sanctions willy-nilly like China did. Um, so essentially what happened, Daisy, mm. was Albanese dropped all of Australia's World Trade Organization cases against China, because China, don't forget, unilaterally um, put sanctions and tariffs on our barley, on our wine and, and other goods. And Albo, you know, just uh, capitulated and took away all of those WTO legal cases, which we would have won, mm. um, and, got, and, and it seems they've gotten very little back, if nothing, back for it. Mm. It, it, it certainly um, seems that way. All this, this cow-towing is a, a little bit nauseating. And you mentioned how we should be focusing on, you know, friendlier countries when it comes to trade. Uh, I've always been so confused by this obsession that Labor and the left tends to have with China, you know, when China is, has so many human rights abuses and is an authoritarian nation. My theory is that even though perhaps Labor doesn't necessarily like that way of, um, um, you know, organising a country, they kind of understand it 
which is why they are so reluctant to condemn it. It's, it's a different ideology. Uh, what do you make of that theory? Yeah, look, I think there's some of that. Um, but if you also, I would say that if you look within the ranks of the Labor Party and there's a number of factions and very powerful factions and unions also, they're also rather anti-American. Mm, that's um, true. And, and, and that's been their history for quite some time. There's also a very strong faction within Labor, you know, led by Paul Keating and Bob Carr um, and others that, you know, are essentially on the Chinese payroll. But they feel that that you know the United States is a spent force. Um, they feel that China is the next world power, and they're more than happy for China to take over as the next world power, uh, and you know, and and ditch the United States. Now we could have a much longer discussion about whether that is in Australia's best interests or not, and I would argue very strongly that it is absolutely not in our best interests mm. at all to go with the new a new hegemon in, in Chinese Communist Party, given their track record, given everything that they do on a daily basis, bullying and being aggressive around the world and including to Australia. Um, so, you, you know, it is, it's really quite disturbing and, uh, and I think quite dangerous um, a position for the Australian Labor government to be taking because I don't think it's in Australia, well, it definitely is not in Australia's best interest in the short term, medium term or long term. Mm, I mean, that to me would be stating the obvious. So I, I don't know where Labor is getting off with this pro-China stuff. It's, it's ridiculous. And look, Lincoln, while Australia obviously must be strong and open and consistent with its international relations and dialogue going forward, um, you know, Albanese stressed that to President Xi in the media, but it seems to me that China wants Australia to be subservient to it rather than to have a relationship of equals. What do you think? Well, th that's very, it's quite openly stuff. They expect uh, all of their tributary states to be essentially vassal states. Mm. Um, they, they don't have a, a history, whether if you go back to the recent past or, you know, thousands of years ago of, you know, cooperating as equals. They just don't. That's a fact. It's there. Um, and we choose not to believe it. Um, you, you can't... Um, believe the information warfare and the propaganda that comes out of China, what you need to do is you need to look at the history and the facts and the way that they currently deal with and treat other countries. We will never be an equal partner. They mm. want us to be a vassal state and subservient. Um, and that seems to be what they got out of Albanese's last trip to his recent trip to China is he was very submissive. Um, and as I said, he, he gave away, uh, he dropped all of the WTO cases. Um, he continued to let a, Stein, a Chinese state-owned enterprise to operate our most strategic port, the port of Darwin. Um, and he, you know, essentially rolled over and got nothing for it. And that's exactly what the Chinese want. And they love that. Mm, and uh, I think it's so funny. He was talking endearingly about how he and G had chatted about how Tasmanian devils are in fact cute and, you know, all that stuff about pandas, like they were old friends. But I just thought G must have just been laughing his head off internally at Albanese while they were having that conversation and thinking, God, who, 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 is, who is this guy? Seriously, the whole thing is, is quite embarrassing, I think. But what, what um, I talked about this in my editorial, Lincoln, what could concerns me um, is there's been a recent graph produced by Aid Data, um, which talks about uh, China's activity in the in the in the Pacific region and how uh, countries that switch their allegiance from Taiwan to China it shows over the last 20 or so years were the immediate beneficiaries of loans and grants and things like that from China, um, and the graph uh, highlighted that the largest beneficiary of China's aid was public. New Guinea. Now, as Australia's closest neighbour, how worried should we be with that foreign investment from China so close to home? We should be very worried, and, and I've been talking about this for some years, and indeed, so and the Liberal Party um, parts of the Liberal Party have been talking about this for some years. Um, as you know, I'm the chairman of the Liberal Party's Defence and National Security Policy Branch, and it's something we've been focused on for quite a number of years. If you look, you know, if you just look at a simple map of Australia, you will find that our sea lanes, our primary 
trading sea lanes run through, obviously on the east coast, up through the Pacific Islands. Um, Papua New Guinea plays a key role in that very strategic space, as does the Solomon Islands. And then if you look to our immediate north on the slightly western side, just above Darwin, you've also got Timor-Leste, um, who have uh, a number of key resources and are very strategically placed um, in a, for Australia's national security. And then if you overlay that with the fact that China has just signed a, a comprehensive strategic military partnership with Timor-Leste, they've signed a comprehensive strategic military partnership with the Solomon Islands, and they're doing the same thing with Papua New Guinea. And as you mentioned, um, they give most of their aid to Papua New Guinea. We are essentially being encircled um, and it, it just provides China another avenue to coerce us to say, well, look, we've got you surrounded. You can't, you know, you're, you're completely dependent on imports because that's the way you've structured your economy. We can cut off all of your imports. And on the East Coast, we can cut off any um, resupply or aid that you may seek from the United States of America because we're controlling all of those island chains. Um, it's, it's, and, and, and look, we're seeing this happen in real time. We saw the Solomon Islands Prime Minister was in Washington, D.C. just a couple of months ago. He was in New York for the United Nations meeting. At that, right after the United Nations meeting, there was a Solomon, uh, sorry, a Pacific Islands summit that was called by the President of the United States, Joe Biden, in Washington, mm. D.C., where he hosted all of the leaders of the Pacific Islands. Um, even though Prime Minister Sogavare of the Solomon Islands was just up in New York, which, as you know, is very close to Washington, D.C., he didn't come. He, mm. he, he uh, snubbed the President of the United States. Oh, my um, goodness. And then... Just just this week, right, this week, there's a very uh, important annual um, Pacific Islands meeting called the Pacific Islands Forum, which is where Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is as we speak. Um, who are the two prime ministers that didn't attend that annual meeting? Ah, well, it happens to be the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands and the Prime Minister of PNG. Now, you know, it doesn't take a genius to draw a connection between the, you know, the the most funding provided by China is to, you know, those countries and they, they tell them what to do and they don't go to any of these regional um, uh, forums or, or uh, conferences or meetings at all. They're firmly in China's orbit and they now happen to surround Australia. I find that to be completely terrifying. Um, and what I find really terrifying, and I have to ask you this, Lincoln, Labor has access to all of this same information about the, the investment in, in the Pacific, who is and who isn't going to forums with President Joe Biden. How can they not see the potential danger that Australia is in because of this? Well, remember, they came to government um, prior to the last election saying we're going to put Australia's security back on track. And, <laughs> and they, I think they... they they use the phrase that, you know, the adults are going to be back in charge and the adults are back in the room and um, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we, we've seen a complete gutting of the Australian Defence Force by this government. Um, they put more reviews on the government than a Broadway show on the <laughs> Department of Defence, um, which, which essentially means that all projects are stopped and the money isn't spent and therefore the Department of Defence is handing back uh, money that goes back into consolidated revenue, which of course the Labor Party loves because then they can use it on their pet projects. We had this week, we had um, Lieutenant General Peter Leahy, who uh, was the former Chief of Army. Um, he said, and, and I quote, that Labor has ripped the heart out of defence, unquote. Mm. Um, so I don't think we've seen a more divisive and dangerous Australian government in our lifetimes. In fact, maybe in the history of the Commonwealth of Australia, because as you say, quite rightly, they know what's going on. Mm. They can see what China is doing in, in our neighbourhood right on our doorstep. They can see that we're being surrounded. They, instead of diversifying our trade, they are continuing going all in with one major trading partner. And even if that trading partner wasn't an aggressive 
communist dictator. Mm. Um, it's still a bad idea, but it, it's a much worse idea when it is China. Um, and at the same time, they're taking money out of our national security. They are weakening Australia. It, it really is a bad look. Um, it's really not good for, for Australia. It's not good for our democracy. It's not good for the average Australian. Um, well, you mean, obviously, this, we, as we discussed before, Daisy, mm. this government is killing the, the average Australian. Even, you know, my electricity prices have gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, businesses are shutting down. Um, real wages have fallen. Um, interest mm. rates have gone up. I mean, when when is it going to stop? Yes, pe people are really, really suffering, and that's before you even get to the just alarming information um, that we've we've got about China's activities and what Labor is doing about it, which is which is nothing. L Lincoln Parker, this has been um, alarming but enlightening. Thank you so much for coming on the show this evening, and we will absolutely be talking to you again about this very important issue. Thanks so much, Daisy. Well, speaking of Anthony Albanese, the latest news poll is out and it's not good news for him or for the Labour Party. Remember, this is the first major poll since the failed voice referendum of October 14th. According to news poll, Albanese has fallen below 50% for the first time in the head-to-head -head contest over who is the Australian public's preferred prime minister. Albanese has recorded a five-point drop to 46% and now leads federal opposition leader Peter Dutton by just 10 points. Now, to give you some perspective, as recently as July, Anthony Albanese led Peter Dutton by a full 25 points. Quite a big drop in just a few months. Perhaps, although Albanese kept insisting the referendum was not about him, voters have now well and truly associated him with that unfortunate Canberra bubble. Out of touch, out of step, and out of excuses. But that's not all the news poll revealed. It also showed the coalition is now leading Labor on the primary vote at 37% to 35%. This is a gain of two points for the Liberal National Parties in the past three weeks and a one-point fall for Labor. And as for the two-party preferred poll between the major parties, it is now at its closest point since the 2022 Australian federal election, with, with Labor's lead sliced from 54 to 46 to 52 to 48%. Now, while the poll still has Labor in an election-winning position if a vote were held today, the direction the numbers have gone in and at the rate they have is not encouraging for Labor or for Anthony Albanese. And honestly, who could blame the public for becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the government? It's not just the fact they place themselves firmly on the side of racial division with their advocacy for the Indigenous voice to Parliament, which Australians comprehensively rejected. We also happen to be in the middle of a crippling cost of living crisis, a combination of inflation, which, although slowing down, is still sitting stubbornly higher than anyone would like, and 13 interest rate rises since May last year, the most recent of which came only this Tuesday past on Melbourne Cup Day of all days. Now, it is a cruel irony that Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers has had to weather 12 of these 13 interest rate rises in his current position, considering his reaction to the promise of the first one, which came just before the 2022 federal election, while the Liberal Party's Scott Morrison was still Prime Minister. Here's what Chalmers said just before the Reserve Bank hiked interest rates for the first time in 11 years back in early May 2022. You know, under Scott Morrison, this is a full-blown cost of living crisis and rising interest rates are about to be part of the pain. We've got skyrocketing costs of living, we've got falling real wages, and now at some point, today or next month, we're going to have interest rate rises uh, as well. Uh, and so whether interest, rate, uh, whether interest rates are increased today or not, uh, the Prime Minister's mm. economic credibility is in tatters. This so, is his cost of living crisis. He needs to take responsibility for once for the broader cost of living pressures that Australians are under. So, according to Chalmers, Scott Morrison's economic credibility was in tatters. 
because of his cost of living crisis and he needed to take responsibility for it. That is a comment that has not aged well, given the fact the cash rate is now 4.35% as opposed to 0.1%, which it was before that first interest rate rise last year, and the fact there is no end in sight to the cost of living crisis, notably the skyrocketing cost of fuel. But it was Jim Chalmers' response to this next question from the host that should really make us all cringe. We're still sitting here, in, if you get in on the 21st, and we're still sitting here a year down the track, 18 months down the track, and rates are still going up. Will you take responsibility? Yeah, what we've said uh, when we released our economic plan last week, and I think we spoke about it, you and I, last week as well, is that the government's got four things that they need to be doing, and these are all essential to our own economic plan on the Labor side. You've got to get the economy growing without adding to these inflationary pressures. You've got to give genuine cost of living relief, not just to get through an election, but to get people through difficult times. You've got to get real wages growing sustainably again. And we've got to get some economic value from this budget, which is absolutely heaving with a trillion dollars in Liberal national debt. And so that's our responsibility. That's what our economic plan that I released with Katie Gallagher is all about, uh, because it is time for a government which takes responsibility for the economy, not just the good bits, but the difficult bits as well. OK. Well, we are about 18 months down the track, and as it turns out, that comment has not aged well either. Now, to be fair, Jim Chalmers was correct when he said Scott Morrison needed to take responsibility for the cost of living crisis at the time. This inflation we're suffering was triggered by the insane amount of money the Morrison government spent on COVID payments, both JobKeeper and constantly funneling money to state governments to facilitate the little COVID fiefdoms the state premiers loved commanding so much. Scott Morrison and his treasurer at the time, Josh Frydenberg, should have been able to see back in 2020 that continuing in that fashion would cause an inflationary situation, especially since we knew from about March 2020 that COVID was, for about 80% of people who caught it, even pre-vaccine, a mild illness, and that most people have a more than 99% a 99% chance of surviving it. If Morrison and Frydenberg had had the courage to slam the checkbook shut in September 2020 to force the states to find another way of managing COVID, a mostly mild illness that didn't involve inhumane and unwarranted lockdowns and border closures and the rest, we would not be in the current economic situation that we're in, at least not as badly. Sure, the coalition government would have been hammered in the media and opinion polls for a while, but the storm would have passed and they may have even won the 2022 election. However, as they say, hindsight is always 2020. It's just a bit rich of Jim Chalmers to harp on about Liberal Party spending and debt and financial responsibility after a pandemic in which federal Labor was clamouring for the Liberals to spend, spend, spend in pandemic payments and whose mostly Labor state governments were relentlessly demanding money from the federal coffers. But what's politics without a bit of hypocrisy here and there? The question now is whether Jim Chalmers has followed his own advice and taken responsibility for the bad bits of the economy that he has been the custodian of as federal treasurer, as federal treasurer for the last 18 months, as well as the good bits. Well, the answer to that is sort of. Here he is on the ABC's 7.30 report on Tuesday night discussing what the government is supposedly doing for cost of living relief. What we've demonstrated is an ability to target cost of living relief to those areas which are where the pain is most acute, out-of-pocket health costs, rent, uh, electricity bills, uh, childcare. These are the sorts of priorities that we've had. And what now, you'll notice those priorities don't include things like lowering taxes, whether that's accelerating the Stage 3 tax cuts due to come into effect next year, or cutting the fuel excise tax, or reinstating the lower and middle income tax offset, which would allow middle income earners to keep an additional $1,500 of their income, which would not be inflationary because it's their money. These are measures that would help 
everyone, not just a sprinkling of subsidies here and there that miss the large swathes of people in the middle who slip through the cracks. So, where on earth does federal labour go from here? Joining me to decipher the direction of the nation is LNP Federal Senator Jared Rennick. Senator Rennick, it is absolutely lovely to have you here this evening. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, Daisy. How are you? I am very well, thank you, and I'm very pleased to see you. Now, let's get stuck into Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers. I mean, he told the ABC the other night that he feels that Labor has shown its ability to target cost of living relief to areas where the pain is most acute, according to him. Does this reflect the sentiment in the community, you think, uh, in the community, do you think, that Labor is appropriately targeting those who have primarily been hurt by this cost of living crisis? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, and in particular, I think the removal of the low income tax offset in this year's federal budget uh, is evidence that Labor Party doesn't really care about low income workers. I mean, it's the people who get out of bed every day and put their nose to the grindstone, even though they don't necessarily make a lot of money. Uh, that are the backbone of this nation and the fact that, and that was something the Coalition did uh, every year we're in government, was actually give a tax cut to those low-income earners and had. And what, what's frustrating about this is, and I've actually, uh, you know, notified both both treasurers I've, I've been a senator for, is that Treasury don't take into account secondary effects. Now, what that means is they ignore the velocity of money. So a tax income cut for an income tax cut for uh, low-income workers will go back into the economy. It'll be just straight back into the economy, yet the Treasury don't take that into account, and I think that's a real shame. Uh, the other evidence that the Labor Party doesn't get it is the fact that they're running a massive immigration policy whilst at the same time cutting spending on infrastructure. So the role of governments is to serve the people, not control them, uh, but the fact that the, the you know Labor Party seems to want to cut back on infrastructure spending whilst at the same time you know, running a, a just a completely reckless immigration rate uh, just goes to show they are not in touch with the community whatsoever. Absolutely. And um, um, fantastic that you mentioned the low and middle income tax offset. I, I spoke about that in my editorial. That that would absolutely be a way to help everyone, you know, who, who is in people in the middle who fall through the cracks of the system because maybe they earn too much money to qualify for any kind of cost of living benefit, but not enough money to be insulated from the cost of living crisis. I, I just think it is, it's so uh, short-sighted. And also, you mentioned this massive immigration push, uh, quite rightly, that Labor is, 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 is on. Why are they doing this, Senator? Are they greedy for more tax dollars or are they greedy for more potential Labor voters? Well, I mean, effectively, it's, it's you know, they're doing the bidding of big business and big universities. I mean, this is what the elites like. It's a lazy way of basically growing the revenue for big corporations and it's a lazy way of generating revenue for universities. I mean, universities should be set up there to basically teach our children how to uh, survive in the real world. Uh, and, of course, you know, what happens now today, of course, is that our, our young children graduate from university brainwashed and broke, uh, whereas at 40 years ago where a lot of our children would go off to TAFE and actually get a trade, they had a serious skill set and had a bit of money from their apprenticeship. Uh, but, look, Labor, big corporations today are owned by mainly industry uh, super funds. Industry super funds, I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, use one proxy advisor at their AGMs and they control over 20% of all the big corp most major corporations in Australia. Mm. So this is a push by, you know, big super, big business uh, and, of course, big universities and, they, you know, and their Marxist ideals. Mm. And you want to know uh, something? I was thinking if, if the goal is, say, to grow the population, for instance, you know, which again would sort of help big business and big government and, and big universities. It's telling, isn't it, that Labor is not playing the long game on this, like tax incentives, say, for women to have more children. I think the, there was the president of Hungary was saying recently they have massive tax, con tax concessions over there. If, you, uh, if you're a woman and you have four or more children, then you are exempt from paying income tax for life, uh, which is, I uh, I think a pretty incredible policy. Why are they not going with those kind of family-friendly um, pro-birth policies? Why is this just massive immigration? Well, the left wing of the Labor Party is effectively, you know, the old-fashioned communist Marxist party. They hate families. I mean, their idea of 
their view of the world is that the government uh, is your family and mm. that the government will decide what's best for you. And I mean, obviously, that's in contrast to, you know, what I consider the true Liberal Party. You know, it's well known that Robert Menzies mentions the word home 23 times in the Forgotten People speech. Uh, and that is what, you know, my view is, you know, that, that family is everything to me. Mm. Uh, you know, I had a period there in my 20s where it was more grog and travelling and, and getting rich, but, you know, now that I'm older, <laughs> you know, it keeps me uh, grounded. Um, but, no, the Labor Party aren't interested in growing the family. And here's the thing, as working conditions and living conditions and the cost of living and all these conditions get harder, people are less inclined to have, have children. Mm. So, of course, it becomes a self-defeating purpose. On the one hand, they're saying we've got a skill shortage, which we do because of the button plan in 1985 that effectively destroyed manufacturing in this country. Uh, we do have a skill shortage, but the best way to overcome that skill shortage would be actually redistribute some of our children who go to university and don't need to back into the actual, um, you know, the, the skilled sector of, you know, carpentry, mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's that's the better way of doing it. But, of course, if they did it that way, then there'd be less people going to university and there'd be less people in the population so the big corporates couldn't make as much money. Well, exactly. I, I mean, as, as we know, Labor must love people going to university nowadays because they, they, they churn out these lefty voters who either vote for Labor or the Greens and, of course, their preferences go to Labor, whereas the working class tends to be, has been, you know, demographically lent more conservative over over the last uh, few years. So, yes, it makes total sense they want more people to, to go to university. Um, speaking of <clears throat> universities, we know how, how green they are and how much uh, Labor loves all of that. There's um, another environmentally friendly Labor project that has been launched recently um, at a cost of $2.04 million, which will see electric vehicle charges mounted on power poles to open up the electric vehicle market to unit terrace or townhouse dwellers. Uh, little Chris Bowen, uh, he, he actually tweeted a clip about this, so let's, let's just have a quick look at this clip. I'm here at Walleye Creek this morning with this very beautiful charger. A lot of Australians want to get an electric vehicle, but they don't have off-street parking and wonder how they're going to charge it, which is a very fair question. So we in the Albanese government are working with a company called IntelliHub and with Arena to roll out 50 of these across New South Wales from Singleton to Walleye Creek as a pilot, uh, street side charging so that people who don't have charging at home have more charging options. It's an important step forward uh, for charging in Australia. Really great to launch this very first of our chargers today. I mean, Senator, aside from this being about the most tone-deaf thing I, I've seen in this in this terrible cost of living crisis, is, uh, this is a rhetorical question, but is this the type of investment Jim Chalmer was talking about that supposedly showcases that Labor has its priorities straight? Uh, it is exactly the type of investment that shows priorities are. I mean, we've wasted... $100 million on the voice for the first half of Albanese's term, which was a complete and utter waste of money. Mm. Uh, and then a lot of the money that Labor is spending on so-called infrastructure or what they call, you know, uh, to stimulate the economy is actually in renewables. And this is at the same time they're saying it out of the other side of their mouth that renewables are cheaper. Well, if renewables are cheaper, why do they need to be subsidised? And that, of course, is the gross hypocrisy of the Labor government. They're completely out of touch with the you know, zeitgeist of the people, uh, the real, work, you know, the, the real people, that is, not the university-educated um, ones, mm. uh, and they need to, you know, they're just completely out of touch. And, it, and, it, and unfortunately, it's the Australian people who will suffer through higher taxes and higher energy prices because of Labor's ideological recklessness. Mm, it, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I saw that that clip, Senator, and my jaw just hit the floor. I thought, really? Like, of, of all the times you could be tweeting t tweeting about electric vehicle charges? OK. Uh, speaking of, of out-of-touch um, Labor politicians, as, Am as Anthony Albanese returns from yet another uh, overseas trip, sure, some have been necessary, but some certainly haven't, um, we can see he's racked up more than $5 million worth of VIP flights since becoming Prime Minister. Like, in this economy, Senator Rennick, how are Australians viewing this kind of spending from the Prime Minister? Oh, I don't think they look upon it very favourably at all. Uh, look, I will qualify that statement by saying I'm not against this trip to China. I think, you know, any any uh, rapprochement we can get with China is a good thing, given that they are our major trading partner. And we always need to keep our diplomatic lines open with our major trading partners 
uh, in the region and across the world. So I'm not against that. But then, but other than that, like there's other trips that he's taken uh, where he hasn't had to take. And I just think he needs to focus on being at home. And if I can just add one thing about Chris Barn and his uh, electric vehicles, I mean, this guy was the uh, immigration minister when we had that disastrous boat policy under the mm. right government. Everything that bloke touches uh, turns to mush. Mm. <laughs> that's that's the best thing I think I've ever heard anyone say about Chris Bowen because it is it's so completely true. Now, Senator Rennick, just before we go, as you and I are mutual Queenslanders, so I think we should have a little bit of a chat about Queensland state politics because Queensland, it's gearing up for its election season uh, next year with the state election a year away. Um, a recent YouGov poll indicated the lowest result for uh, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk Anastasia Palaszczuk since she became Premier in 2015 and she is now for the first time no longer Queensland's preferred Premier. This is huge. I'm thinking, does the Queensland LNP finally have the goods this time around, do you think, to manage to bump this incompetent Labor state government? Oh, absolutely. And to be fair, I think we had the goods four years ago, except that COVID just swept everything mm. before it. And, uh, you know, it, it just any incumbent premier had, had the front running. But absolutely, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly look forward to seeing the back of Anastasia Palaszczuk. I hope she's there in October 24, uh, 24 uh, because, you know, I would love the chance to vote her out for the disastrous management throughout the COVID period. And throughout her disastrous management over the last nine years, I mean, she has run down essential services uh, across our state uh, in a manner that has had a grave detrimental effect on so many hardworking Queenslanders. And at the end of the day, state governments are really service delivery providers. I mean, it's health, education and police. Crime is out of control. Health is, you know, health waiting lists are out of control. And just yesterday we heard that Grace Grace now wants to cut back the number of school hours for our children, which <laughs> is just, you know, because <laughs> so many teachers have left the education department through various means, one of which, of course, was the COVID vaccine mandates, mm. uh, that they can't get enough teachers to teach our children. And that is just a damning indictment on the incompetence of the Palaszczuk Labor, and go Labor government. Mm, yeah, we we they they have to be turfed. I mean, I I, I hate to see. I, I actually can't stand looking at them anymore. I, I was so enraged by them with the way that they handled COVID and just exploited, you know, state parochialism in order to terrify people into voting them. And then of course there were the vaccine mandates, as you said, just disgraceful. Queenslanders. Vote them out would be my advice and certainly Absolutely. I'm sure Senator Rennick's advice. Senator Rennick, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show this evening and I would absolutely love to have you back soon. Thanks very much, Daisy. Have a great, great evening. Well, that's all we have time for this evening on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed watching the program as much as I enjoyed hosting it. And thank you so much to everyone who made the show possible. Up next is The Other Side Australia with Damien Khoury. Good night, everyone. I'll see you next time. <laughs>